Good afternoon. So good to see all of you. And those of you just come in, come on in. This is the uh, favorite seat. This is the seat to take. But anyway, we have a lot of, once again, we have uh, many uh, friends who are visiting us. And uh, I, yeah, and uh, to be honest, last Sunday when I was standing up here, I couldn't almost, uh, didn't recognize our church because a lot of regular members are joining via Zoom. And we have more, I think, newcomers, in, you know, recent comers than our members. So now I'm slowly adjusting. All right. Uh, let me introduce some friends. Okay, I, I know her father, a never, you know, wonderful pastor. And uh, so daughter, you know, Grace and husband, Joe, we welcome you and all your children. Yes, in the back. Joe is a friend of Rose from El Paso. Yep. Yep, my town, right? And also uh, friends of uh, Chris Yum, uh, I guess a co-worker, Tony Kim. Where are you, Tony? Tony, we welcome you, Tony. Yes. Yep. We have a lot of good-looking young men here in our church. And we also, the, the tribe of uh, Cajuns are growing every Sunday. I don't know will be a Cajun church soon, but uh, Hong, Hong Yu, we welcome you, Hong Yu, we welcome you, and also Michael, all right, Michael, we welcome you. I heard that uh, some of you guys went to the house church in Frisco, the Yale Venezuela house church, right? So, you know, Frank and, yep, I hope they, yep, anyway. And then friend of Ahan, another, you know, transplant from California, we call Texit people. So from SoCal, Sean and, J Sean and Jane. Where are you, Sean and Jane? I'm sorry. Sean and Jane is, okay, we welcome you. All right, I bet there are more people. Is anyone I missed? Would you like to introduce your friend to us? Otherwise, let's start. So let's all stand and then go to... Five people that you recognize and five you don't recognize, say hello. Get to know each other. Say hello. And while you're greeting, people on the uh, back, move up. How are you, Alex? Today's call to worship comes from Isaiah 61 and the look for which later we will share. So let's all stand and let's read responsibly and let's begin our worship. You who are poor, why have you come? 
I guess we are not many poor people here. So let me ask again. You who are poor, why have you come? You who are brokenhearted, why have you come? You who are captive, why have you come? You who are prisoners, why have you come? You who mourn, why have you come? Then you are welcome here in this place, at this table, where Jesus offers blessing for all. Let us praise and adore God's anointed Savior, who atones us for divine joy and eternal freedom. Amen. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we praise you and thank you for opening the eyes of the blind, breathing life into the dead, releasing those bound by sin and Satan. We pray that through your Holy Spirit and his power, may our hearts be challenged. May our minds be convinced. May our wills be conquered. All this we pray in the name of Son of God, who came to be our Savior, who lives to be our Lord, who will return and fully make all things new. Amen. Let us all praise the Lord. Good morning, church. It's been a while since I've been here, and it's really good to be back. Um, so we're going to start off with this new song, and this was a song that was incredibly comforting to me um, this week. This was a week of a lot of uh, ups and downs and unexpected things. Uh, we're down like 70% of our staff, um, so basically... Like next week, we were told we may not be able to work, um, and it may have to be all through like electronics. And then we lost this one physician; um, just kind of let got let go unexpectedly. So that was very traumatic for all of us. And so the over just the repeated theme that I was feeling was just this powerlessness. Just feeling like everything, you know, is out of control and, you know, COVID and keeping kids safe and just you, you feel like you can't do anything like within your power. But this song reminded me that we have the most powerful God behind us. Like he is on our side. And this I want to read share this verse from Psalms 33. It starts um, on verse 9, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. Amen. So as we sing this song, even though it may be new to you, let's really you know, experience the power of God and let us, let us just praise him for who he is this morning.
Father, thank you so much for this worship Sunday. As we gather together to worship you, let us be united in lifting up our prayers and praises to you. Let us open up our hearts to bless you and be blessed by you. You have been so faithful to FCC. We are so thankful for all the blessings you've given us. Thank you for each missionary partners we're able to support. Please protect them and their families both physically and spiritually as they serve in their mission field. We are also thankful for our house church ministry here at Forest. Even during the pandemic, you have allowed many to multiply. Thank you for the fellowship and relationships that are growing within each house church. Let us not get weary of gathering, praying for one another, and also praying for our VIPs. We pray for those who need healing physically. We especially lift up Sarah Chung, Juno's mother, Daniel's father, Stephanie's grandfather, and Youngju's father. We pray for your healing and comfort for each of them. We also pray for everyone's safety as COVID is still surging. As the month of January is almost at an end, let us not get complacent in our desire to grow in our relationship with you. Help us always to go to you and be fed by your word. Lastly, we pray for Pastor Paul as he delivers the message. We pray you will give him your wisdom. Pray, prepare our hearts as we are about to receive your message. Thank you again, and in your name we pray. Amen. All right, children, follow your teachers. Have a wonderful time together. I don't think I might speak all that far, so next time feel free to move a little bit closer. At Forest, I preach three regular sermon series in a year for balanced spiritual diet. In spring, I start the new year with a gospel. In summer, we study the Old Testament. In the fall, we learn about the letters of the New Testament. Last spring, we reflected on the gospel of Mark, entitled the Act of Jesus. In uh, spring 2022, we're going to study Gospel of Luke. I selected the 10 passages in the Luke starting today till Palm Sunday. The criteria of my selection is a combination of importance and ignorance. I already, already preached a chunk of passages in the Gospel of Luke, especially parables. So whatever I didn't preach or I don't recognize well are the ones that I want to study and share with you. And let me give you a short introduction to the Gospel of Luke using Gospel as an acronym. You know, we have a lot of acronyms in our church, and some people complain, but what can you do? I'm your pastor, so. Uh, but uh, I'm a humanity major, and the uh, acronym is a mnemonic device, very common mnemonic device to remember. So I love acronym. So Gospel. First, Luke is a Gentile. He's a Greek. But he is also a disciple of Paul, Apostle Paul. He wrote two books, Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. 
Luke is about the story of Jesus, and the Acts is about how church started and spread. Once again, two main themes of Luke's theology, Christ and church. Christ and church. That's the main theme of a Christian theology, people. So I hope you also, if you have a theology, it's all about the Christ and the church. And he is, even though he's a Greek, he is a very much Jewish in terms of writing and thinking. So it's a very Old Testament intensive. So Gospel of Luke uh, recognizes or refers, cites the Old Testament very much. Right next to the, you know, Matthew, make a lot of references of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke deeply appreciates the Jewish history and scripture because there he sees the eternal God revealing his heart and temporal history of Israel. You know, it's like uh, some of us, like me, naturalized citizens, appreciate the uniqueness and specialty of our country better than some natives. You know, America is a special country. You know, I love uh, my native country, not because it's a perfect country, but it's a penitent country. We have a lot of problems, but we have overcome, and we're still fighting, and I, I know one day we will overcome the systemic racism and all other things. So Luke recognized the unique, redemptive significance of a Jewish people and their Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the whole world. As stands for scientific uh, writing, Luke was a physician. So he was not an emotional writer, a believer. So he's an intellectual and a careful thinker. If you look at the Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he said, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have a certainty of things that you've been taught. The Greek word for certainty is asphalia, from which we have an English word asphalt. So Luke wrote his gospel for us to believe with assurance or conviction or confidence. So gospel of Christ is not a myth but it's an actual history to look. And P stands for praying or prayerful. Luke was not a dry, rational Christian thinker, but a man of a deep spirituality. Gospel of Luke highlighted Jesus' praying life more than any other Gospels. Combined with the Luke, Luke uh, combined with the book of Acts, Luke's writing uh, mentioned more than one-third of the prayers of the New Testament. And finally, E, my favorite E, eating. In this gospel, eating occasion mentioned more than other gospels. And the theme of eating and celebrating Jesus is highlighted. And I want you to know that eating is a biblical and deeply spiritual. Who you eat with is who your life companion is. You know, world actually companion. In the Latin, simply means somebody who shares the food with you, bread with you. Come, come means with. Pan or pen, that is a Latin word for bread. Someone who shares, uh, you know, I mean bread. So our closeness someone is measured by number of meals that we have with that person. So forest is a feasting church. And, you know, forest is a feasting church. I'm a drinking pastor. Well, that's just, you know, ask me what, that, what I mean by it. We drink boba, we drink, you know, coffee, we drink other drinks. 
Now, L stands for love for little people, especially little people that world be little, poor woman and Gentile. For look, Jesus was not a savior and the Lord for the mainstream people like uh, religious rich male Jews, but all the marginalized people like a poor woman and Gentile. So I entitled our gospel series on look, King for All, King for All. This is a gospel presented Jesus as a king for all. So let's read our first study text today. Luke chapter 4, verse 13 to 30. Let's read it responsively, okay? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of a prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found a place where it is written. Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious word that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you, we have heard that you did it in Capernaum. Truly, I'll tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with the leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogues were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out to the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off to the cliff together. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Flowers fall, but the words of the God last forever. We just read the story about the first preaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Biblical scholars and theologians call the first sermon of Jesus as his hometown, Nazareth Manifesto. Nazareth Manifesto. Just like a communist manifesto written by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, in 1848, shaped the modern world history, the first sermon of Jesus is very significant because we see not only Jesus' messianic mission, but also our life mission. This sermon is supposed to anchor and compass of our spiritual journey. You know, later in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist was imprisoned and he has a temporary doubt about identity, messianic identity of Jesus. He sent a messenger, and Jesus 
confirm and calm John the Baptist by repeating this very sermon. So uh, Luke chapter 7, 22, Jesus replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind received sight and the lame walk and those who have leprosy are cleansed and deaf hear and the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. From Nazareth's manifesto, we find the three programmatic directions of our life. Programmatic, programmatic directions of life. As the first sermon summarizes Jesus' mission and ministry, it should also steer our life and our mission as his followers. So three program, programmatic directions will prepare us for a faithful and fruitful life journey in 2022 and beyond. So three things we're going to study today is the content of the sermon, center of the sermon, and also controversy of sermon. So it's easy, three, see, right? Content, center, and the controversy. In order to understand the Jesus first preaching at his hometown, let me brief you the typical order of a synagogue worship at the time. First, there was a singing, just like we did, of especially Psalm 145 to 150, Messianic Hallel Psalm, Hallelujah Psalm. And then it was followed by the uh, citation, recitation of a Shema. Hear Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then 18 benedictions were recited aloud in succession. And then coming the reading of the scripture. And the Jewish synagogue leader usually read a portion in the uh, 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 book of uh, Moses or law, the Torah. And then, then he asked visiting rabbi or local rabbi to read another portion of scripture from a prophet. And then the visiting or rabbi sit down, sat down in the teaching chair and uh, give a sermon. Okay? And then it ends with a benedictions of, uh, you know, the famous Aaron's benediction that Lord bless you, keep you, and the Lord, you know, you know, turn his face to you and be gracious to you. You know, all those things you all, you heard. Yeah. Now, today when Jesus returned to Nazareth, after his initial ministerial success in Capernaum, a big city in Galilee, his hometown synagogue leader asked Jesus to read a book of, a portion in the book of Isaiah, and Jesus intentionally unrolled the scroll and then read the combination of Isaiah 58, 6, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. And listen to that sermon, that quote again. Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of a sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Three important facts that we need to note on Jesus' citation of Isaiah. First, this prophecy was for the greatest comfort and jubilation for the Israelites. Context of Isaiah's prophecy was that people of God at this time were about to go to Babylonian exile because of their disobedience to God. And God was promising them that he will eventually liberate them 
and then restore them back to their homeland. So to give them a great hope, God reminded them of his most gracious command and wisdom called year of a jubilee. What is the year of a jubilee? According to Leviticus 25, God told Israelites that rest a part of a farming land every seventh year to restore and retain the fertility of the soil. And then seventh, number seven, sabbatical year, God commanded Israel to return the ancestor land to the poor, forgiving all their debt and recreate the economic level field. So every 50 years, every one and a half generations, everyone especially poor can rebuild their life with a dignity. This seventh sabbatical year called year of a jubilee. And Bible call it, you know, God loved these people. By the way, this year of a jubilee, God loved, you know, this idea of a year of a jubilee. And God wished these people helping each other. Just like, you know, parents. What is the joy of a parent? Seeing these children helping each other, right? Even when, you know, especially the adult children, the, the, the more well-to-do children, child helping the less well-to-do, you know, siblings. You know, that gives a great joy to the parent. Just like that, God loved people helping each other so much that the Jubilee was called Year of the Lord's Favor. Year of the Lord's Favor. In another word, Jubilee is a God's favorite year. God's favorite year. God's favorite year. That's the Jubilee. Unfortunately, Israelites never fulfilled God's Jubilee in their history. So through prophet Isaiah, today God was telling them that although you were selfish and foolish and disobedient about year of Jubilee, I will nevertheless bring a Jubilee to you. And you will taste my greatest joy, the jubilation. That's the first fact. And the second important fact in this Jesus citation of Isaiah is, is that the, our Lord intentionally, intentionally omitted second half of Isaiah's prophecy. So if you look at the Isaiah prophecy, chapter 60, Isaiah 61, verse 2, Isaiah actually said, Lord, anoint me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of a vengeance of our Lord. Originally, Isaiah's prophecy promised not just God's jubilee, but also God's judgment to avenge the enemy of Israel. But Jesus was completely silent about the second promise. Why? You will see his reason at the end of his sermon later. Instead of judgment, Jesus emphasized his life and ministry is all about jubilation. Unmost joy and good news to everyone, especially the poor, the prisoner, blind, and oppressed. That's the third important fact about Jesus' citation. You know, biblical scholars debate whether description of these four groups of people was a literal or metaphorical. I think it means both. Because there is a close link between material poverty and the spiritual humility. You know, when you're poor, you're usually humble, right? Not arrogant. And that's why, you know, these days, 
when you see Christianity, where does Christianity is growing in this our world? It's usually it's growing in the poor countries like Africa, South America, and some part of Asia. While Christianity is declining in rich countries like Western Europe and Japan and South Korea, even South Korea, you know, used to be whatever, grow, you know, all, all the big churches. Now, South Korea, I heard there are 2 million Christians who stopped going to the church even before the pandemic. By the way, the poor in the ancient Greco-Roman world was very different from the poor in America today. If you were born poor back then, most likely you'd die as a poor. There was no means for the social mobility like education or job training like today. Unless you chose a criminal career or a corrupt career like tax collecting, the poor in Jesus' time has no hope of improving their life. So when they borrow some money in an emergency and they couldn't pay, they were thrown into the jail. That's the prisoner that Jesus was referring to. So also many became blind due to the lack of hygiene and medical care. It still happens a lot of parts of the third world today. And lastly, the oppressed. The word oppressed came from the root word, which means broken in pieces or shattered. These were the people who were crushed by life circumstances and couldn't see no way out. A well-known British journalist in 20th century, Malcolm Magridge, made this confession after you know, coming to Christ later in his life. He said, all of the freedom once won soon turn into new servitude. He said, all the new freedom he experienced eventually becomes a, a trap. Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. Amen? You know, as a pastor, I have counseled many people, found a good number of them were oppressed and imprisoned, none other than by their own false images and imagination and expectations. You know, after hearing them, I often bite my tongue because I wanted to tell them, your problem is you. Your problem is not your spouse, your child, or others, or circumstances. You are oppressed by yourself and your false expectations. You know, I call this sad, strange phenomenon self-oppression. Self-oppression. Are you familiar with this experience, self-oppression? You know, Jesus said, devil is a father of liars. You know, devil tells us, trust yourself more than anything. Love and serve yourself above all. Sacrifice anything and everything for yourself because you are the most important thing to you. And we instinctively fall into his trap and blindly follows devil's gospel of self-love. Gospel of self-love. And then we find what Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, you know, confessed in Jeremiah 79. The heart is deceitful above all things, beyond the cure. Who can understand it? Devil is a deadly liar. Satan is the most aggressive accuser. When we love ourselves more than anything, do you know what we will experience at the end? Deep disappointment. Deep disappointment in myself, and self-hatred called regret. 
You know, regret is one of the worst forms of self-oppression. So how can we liberate ourselves from self-oppression and all kinds of other oppressions in our life? We find the answer to our problem in Jesus' first sermon. So that's the second point of our sermon, center of a sermon. Verse 20. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in synagogue were fastened on him. When Jesus deliberately chose God's promise of a restoration in Isaiah 61 for his sermon text, he got the attention of everyone. And then he delivers his first sermon, verse 21. Jesus began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' first sermon was the shortest, eight words. Yet the most powerful sermon I think he ever delivered. In his first sermon as hometown, you know what Jesus declared? He said, I am the fulfillment of God's prophecy. I am the jubilee. I am the promise of a restoration. In words, Jesus make a radical claim about himself there. I am God's jubilee. I am your redemption. You know, this is an incredible radical claim of Jesus. You know, literally, Jesus claimed, called himself Christ because verse 18, the spirit of the Lord on me and because he anointed me. Greek word for anointed is a creo from which we have an English word Christ. Jesus revealed the center of his message and the good news of God to be himself. I am your good news. That's what Jesus said. I'm your good news. I'm your hope. You know, amazingly, Jesus didn't make this radical claim about himself, not to strangers or foreigners who knew not, not much about him, but to the hometown people who saw him, knew him, Every day in the past 30 years. Can any normal human being can make this kind of claim? As C.S. Lewis says, either Jesus is a crazy if his claims is not true, or he's a truly Christ if, he, if his claim is true. Here we must recognize the important historical fact that no Jewish rabbi ever made this kind of radical claim about himself like a Jesus. This was not the also first time and the last time Jesus made a radical claim about himself. Look at the John 5.36. Jesus said, you studied scripture diligently because you think that in them you find eternal life. These are the very scripture that testify about me. Jesus claimed the whole scripture is about him. He's a focal point, the center of God's revelation. Jesus is basically that I am the summation of the Bible. You read a Bible, you basically try to learn about me. And then John 8:56. His uh, radical claim gets deeper and bigger and longer, whatever, higher. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Somehow, God revealed to Abraham his friend, about the coming Messiah. And according to Jesus, Abraham rejoiced. 
And then people will shout that you are not even 50 years old. You have seen Abraham who died 1,800 years ago. You are crazy. And then Jesus said this. True, very truly, I'll tell you, before Abraham was born, what did Jesus say? He didn't say, I was. I am. You know what I am? Jesus intentionally identified himself with Yahweh. Because Yahweh means I am who I am. Here Jesus said, I am divine. I have a pre-temporal existence. I didn't exist after birth, my, my, my biological, before biological birth, I am. Later Jesus said in John chapter 14, 6 that he is the truth, life, and way to God. Jesus didn't say, I know the truth, I have a truth to teach. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus didn't say, I know how to live a meaningful life. No, Jesus said, I am the life. Life is not def- life doesn't define me, I define the life. And Jesus didn't not say that I know way to God and I, I can guide you. No, Jesus said, I am the way. You follow me, you will find God. You see me, you see my Father. Radical claim of Jesus as a God's jubilee and redemption is what makes a Christianity different from all other religions. You know, all other religions, major religions in the world tell us what to do for salvation. Christianity tells us who saves us. Who saves us? Other religion conveys teachings and principles to achieve salvation. Christianity simply calls us to person of Jesus Christ. I was a former Buddhist. You know, Buddhism, we follow the, you know, we believe in Buddha, but not as a savior, but as a teacher. You know, he's a savior because he taught the way of salvation. Not because he saved me. He just showed me how to, you know, help myself. And we call it four noble truths of God. Uh, no, four noble truths, sorry. And then, you know, Islam, same thing. Five pillars of a faith. Christianity simply call us a relationship to Jesus. When we have Jesus in our heart, we know we are forever loved by God. And we are forever saved by God. Amen? You know, when, uh, when I was a non-Christian in, in my adolescence, and my Christian friends told me that uh, if I believe Jesus and receive him in my heart, you know, I'll be, I'll be saved. And I didn't understand what they meant because my only reference point was Buddhism. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, how in the world that a guy who died 2,000 years ago, that and whom I never met and saw and even saw in the picture, can change me or even save me? This is ludicrous. You know, these Christians, these are the sort of uh, uh, people of a wild imagination. Poor, poor, poor losers. You know, that's what I thought. And then once I received Christ in my heart, do you know what happened? I found out why Jesus who lived on earth 2,000 years ago still affecting me because he's alive. He's still reigning. And he hears my prayer and answers my prayer. You ask me, I have incredible answered prayers in my life. 
As a Buddhist, I couldn't say. As a Christian, I can confidently say. And much more, he speaks to me through his word. I hear not a physical voice, but an incredible spiritual voice of my Savior and good shepherd through the Bible. Jesus is my answer to self-oppression. Jesus is my answer to self-idolatry. Jesus is a medicine to my mental health. The more I get to know Jesus, the healthier, grateful, more grateful, and stronger my heart becomes. Is it Jesus in your heart? Do you have a Jesus in your heart? Now let's look at the, our final and third point of the sermon, the controversial sermon. The reaction about Jesus' hometown people to Jesus' first preaching is very interesting and definitely controversial. We need to pay close attention because many people uh, kind of, uh, uh, in my opinion, they read uh, uh, negatively. So look at the verse 22. After Jesus preached, all spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious word that came from his lips. Isn't this a Joseph's son? They asked. As you know, this Nazarene crowd became a very hostile to Jesus very soon. So many devotional commentators and even well-known you know, preachers, they teach that uh, Jesus' hometown people became a skeptical and cynical toward Jesus because of their familiarity with Jesus. Yes, familiarity breeds content, but do you sense any negativity in Luke's description about the people's initial reaction to Jesus' first preaching right after? It said, all spoke well of Jesus. All were amazed at the gracious word that came from his lips. In the light of this affirmative impression, they rhetorically asked, isn't this a Joseph's son? There's a nothing negative about people's reaction to Jesus' first sermon so far. I think people of Nazareth were positively impressed by Jesus and loved his first sermon. They loved, you know, his promise of deliverance and restoration. They saw they would be the immediate beneficiary of the Lord's favor that Jesus talked about. So when they say, isn't he one of, isn't this the son of uh, Joseph's son? You know what they're saying? He's one of us. We know him. We have a special connection to him. Nazarenes were very proud of their unexpected rabbi. This carpenter's son and the carpenter all of a sudden became religious star of the nation. News of his powerful ministry, popular reputation in a main city like Capernaum made the Nazarenes very special and almost vindicated because Nazareth was not known for anything good. Do you remember Nathaniel's comment about Nazareth in John chapter 1? When Philip invited Nathaniel to meet Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet of Moses predicted, what did he say? Nazareth, can anything good can come from there. And today, Nazarenes, they saw their town pride completely vindicated 
and picked through Jesus. Now, then what made a Nazarene to turn violent to Jesus? All right, you need to pay attention here. We see here the glimpse of Jesus' omniscience in verse 23. Jesus read their mind better than anyone. And this is what Jesus said at the moment. When they are all excited about Jesus, Jesus said, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus knew about his hometown people's expectation. They wanted to see some miracles of Jesus in Nazareth. So physician heal yourself was a common proverb in antiquity. It expressed the idea that one must not refuse to do his own people the favors that he does to others. And Jesus saw the demanding heart and parochial visions of his town people over their assumed relationship to him. They're basically saying, Jesus, you are one of us. You are Nazarene, like us. We know your father. We know your mother. Your brothers and sisters married our, you know, our family and friends. We are related to you. So, you would not, should not refuse your hometown people's wishes. Give us first the deliverance and jubilee that you that, that we heard that you're doing in the big city. You know, people of Nazareth were imposing and claiming their priority and home advantage on Jesus. It's like we are your home team, you know, give us uh, some extra. So, unlike they were, unlike the, uh, the familiarity breeze of contempt, there was no contempt here. They are rather, their familiarity with Jesus is more like uh, creating false claim on Jesus. It's like a nepotism. I know you. You know, we go way back. Come on, you know. I don't know whether you experienced, uh, you know, several, many, a few years ago, several years ago in a different church, a guy came to me when I was teaching at DJ, and all of a sudden he said, oh, I'm applying a, Chaplain, you know, uh, chaplaincy of a Christian high school in South Korea. And the, can you write a re uh, recommendation for me? Problem? I don't know anything about him. Simply, we attend the same church. Out of blue, he needs a job and recommendation. I have a, a, a faculty position in Christian school, so he asked me my recommendation. See? You know what I did? I take a recommendation so seriously that I'm not qualified to write a recommendation. Are you impressed with my, my response? I was. Anyway, that's a different story. So, when I write a recommendation, I bet my life on that person. So, I take a recommendation seriously. Yes, in the past, I wrote a fake recommendation for high school students and college students. I stopped doing that. So, I repented that sin. So, okay, forgive me. I'm not perfect, but I repented. Okay? What was Jesus' response to his hometown people? Here we see the last important fact and programmatic direction of life. Jesus is saying this. Although God loves us and God is for me, you cannot say it. That doesn't mean that you can control God and impose your demands on God. If you really believe 
Jesus is your God's jubilee and your redemption, you simply must trust and obey him. Instead of telling Jesus to join my project or my journey, you should join his journey because Jesus knows everything, everything better than you know, I. So Jesus gave a second sermon. Do you know there was a second sermon here? Jesus gave two primary examples of faith and obedience. First, verse 24. Truly, I'll tell you, continue, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Once again, Jesus, you know, liking Jesus as a hometown hero does not mean accepting him. You know, accepting Jesus means trusting and obeying him. And then verse 25, Jesus said, I assure you, there were many widows in, the, in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was, sent, was not sent to any one of Israelites but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In 1 Kings 17, God sent his prophet Elijah to a strange place. That is the little pagan town named Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Why is it a strange place? Sidon was where the arch enemy of Elijah, Jezebel, came from. Jezebel was a foreign princess, a missionary of a Baal religion who married Israel's king Ahab. And she was a notorious pagan queen who tried to eliminate all the prophets of Israel and eradicate the faith, of, faith in Yahweh. You know? She was so anti-Israel, anti-God of Israel, that she was even mentioned in the book of Revelation. Amazingly, God sent his prophet to save a nameless pagan widow in enemy nation. There, Elijah met a widow and her son, son who were preparing their last meal. And guess what Elijah asked them? He audaciously asked her to give up their last meal for him and promise God's reward. And this is an incredible, you know, uh, uh, faith story. So, so let's look at the uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse uh, 13 and 14. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and make us something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the jar of your floor will not be used up, and jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends a rain on the earth. You know, amazingly, this pagan widow trusted and obeys God's word, and thus she survived the famine. Once again, it was now where you came from. It's now where you came from. Is there another sermon going on? It's now where you came from, but what you do with God matters most. God responds and rewards anyone who trusts and obeys him. You know, through this, Jesus was correcting a Nazarene. If a Gentile woman trusted strange promise and weird demand of Israel's prophet without asking any evidence first and gave a last meal to him, how much more should you, Nazarenes, people of Israel, trust and obey me? If you claim to like me and support what I do, why don't you trust and obey me instead of imposing your wishes on me? Someone greater than all prophets. And then Jesus gave another example. 
verse 27, there were many in Israel with the lepers in time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed, only the Naaman the Syrian. In 2 Kings 5, we find the Syrian general Naaman. Naaman. He was a great warrior, beloved by the king of Assyria, the enemy nation of Israel at the time. Unfortunately, General Naaman had a shameful problem of leprosy. leprosy. And one day his wife was talking to a slave girl who happened to be Israelite POW. And this Israeli you know, slave girl was bragging about the, uh, the, the, her prophet. So even you know, slave girl has a pride, you know, even though she was imprisoned by 14, foreigners. She's bragging, though, oh, you know, you know, we have a great prophet, oh, you know. And so Naaman ended up coming to Elisha for healing. When Naaman came to Elisha, interestingly, Elisha didn't even meet him, but sent a messenger, said, just up, what is that? Pop up and down in the Jordan River seven times, and then you will be healed. And Naaman was so mad. He felt so disrespected. And then, if that's a simple, I have an even better clean river in my hometown. Why in the world that I came all the way here? He was, uh, you know, rushing, you know, rushing, you know, he's, he's a rushing back to his hometown, and guess what? His servant said, what do you got to lose? You came all the way here. No big deal about, you know, you have to take shower anyway. Let's do this shower here. You know, sort of a, a hidden secret of the story. So two slaves, two servants, and guess what? Naaman disgruntledly bathed himself in Jordan River seven times, and guess what? He was healed. And not only physically, but I think spiritually, because he came to Elisha with a great respect and apology and repentance. Now, Jesus gave these two Gentiles as a role models of a faith and trust to his hometown people. Jesus was saying, don't claim any kind of extra, you know, expectations on me because we are the same people. We, we go way back. God loves everybody, and God loves to give a favor to anyone who obeys and trusts him more than anything. It's not about, the, you know, our some particular relationship or whatever, it is about our obedience to God. Are you willing to obey God? That's what it matters. Are you grateful and humble to obey God? Look at these pagan people who don't know anything about our God, yet they obeyed and they are blessed. That's what Jesus was calling out. How about us? Somehow, in back of your whole mind, you somehow sit there, God will bless me because I've been in this church for a long time. Or I've been a pastor for a long time. I got this, you know, whatever degrees. Or I, I, I work hard. You know what? That is like a Nazarene mentality. That's a false expectation. God loves it all. But God does not show favoritism. <laughs> God shows a favor to anyone who trusts and obeys him, brothers and sisters. And this is why 
I really believe that, uh, you know, the ministry is about the brokenness and the humility and the prayer. You know, two weeks ago, I talked about this, uh, being a shepherd means uh, being a nursing mother to our own kids. You know, when you serve other people as uh, their spiritual shepherds, you feel so, you will find out you don't have enough love for people. Because people are selfish, let me tell you. People are selfish. And then times like that, what do you do? You kneel down before God and cry out. Lord, I cannot help them. Help me. You recognize your own spiritual poverty faster than any time when you serve other people. And that's a blessing. Because when we become a poor in spirit, while serving other people, guess what? That's when God's unexpected shower of encouragement and blessings all come. That's my testimony. Now, Jesus told his hometown people this great story, but guess what? When Jesus touched their Jewish pride, they violently reacted and rejected Jesus. They abruptly end their worship without benediction, rushed to kill Jesus. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out to the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. From the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus shows us there are only two choices we can take toward him. Either we receive him or we reject him. There's no other halfway. Either trust that he is a good news and we obey his way and taste his jubilee or resist his offer with a controlling and eventually reject him. This rejection of a Nazarene foreshadows the uh, Israel's rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus at the end of his public ministry. But just like Jesus passed through the lynching mob, the risen Christ will pass through the death at the end. Hallelujah. Let me close. How about us? How about you? Do you recognize that Jesus claimed to be your jubilee? I want us, I want us to realize this. Everything we have will be gone. Your beauty, your health, your intelligence, your whatever, you know, nice physics, or your money, your, 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 your whatever profession, everything we acquire will be gone from us one day. Slowly, surely, it will be gone. We'll be left with nothing. I can tell you, I have two mothers, my mother and my mother-in-law who are 90. These once brilliant people are now basically have other, you know, one day we'll have nothing. It'll happen to everybody. What's going to be? Good news is Jesus wants to have us, and he has us in his heart. And we open our heart and have Jesus in our heart as long as Jesus has us in his heart. And we know it. We know also Jesus in our heart. We have everything. 
Let's pray.